Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Are you interested in some further reading on social movements and left politics? You should be if you're listening to Survive in Society. Red Pepper is a quarterly magazine and website of politics and culture. It is a space for debate on the left and a home for open-minded socialists. Red Pepper is reader funded with a sliding scale subscription model, ensuring its content is available to all. Find a link to Red Pepper magazine in the episode notes. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. Uh, listeners might be able to hear in my voice that we have just <laughs> have had a very excitable pre-chat. You'll see in the episode title what we're going to be talking about today, so you can imagine how excited we are. We are uh, in the studio and Laura is joining us via Zoom. That's Laura Clancy, who is a lecturer in media at Lancaster University and who is author of Running the Family Firm, How the Royal Family manages its image and our money. Laura has also written for the Sociological Review, for Cultural Studies, and the book that we're talking about today was uh, shortlisted for the BSA Philip Abrahams Prize. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm going to say thank you in advance for providing us with the full receipts on the firm, a.k.a. the Royal Family, a.k.a. the Windsors, a.k.a. Straight gangsters. Straight Straight gangsters. gangsters. They're straight gangsters (laughs) out here. You get me? Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. T's leg is like shaking because I know he just wants to ask you so many questions. But for the listeners, can we just start from the beginning? How did you get into writing about the Royal Family? So it was it was kind of an accident, to be honest. <laughs> um, so I did I did my master's dissertation on, on Kate Middleton and gender. So the chapter that's in the book really is my MA dissertation, more or less. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole. And as I was doing that, I kind of realised that there's, there's barely anything about the monarchy, kind of in sociology or in scholarship generally. Why is that, do we think? Well, there's quite a lot of stuff in the 90s, mm. which was kind of when there was like a period of, crisis in quotation marks but there's been a lot less since i think that's partly in my opinion that's because it, they're just seen as like part of the status quo mm. like they're just seen as being there and that's it like so many times when i was writing this i kind of got from people why are you bothering with that so i think it's just it's so kind of in the fabric of britain mm. that people just don't think to question it so i kind of went down that rabbit hole of well there's not no research on them um and then it kind of snowballed into what this book has become <laughs> i'm actually overwhelmed by it all when you read it you think, ah, oh, that's so obvious. It's in front of your face, right? And I think this is the trick of the monarchy. To paraphrase um, the usual suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he never existed. That's what yeah. they do. That's what they do. I was like, this book is sick, bro. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. I think that's kind of what I felt as well. Like when I started this, I didn't, I didn't, I never loved the roles, but I didn't hate them with the amount that I do now, to be honest. <laughs> I was kind of quite neutral on it. And then the more you read... And the kind of the bigger picture you build, like it's quite incredible, actually. And it's quite incredible, like you said, what's in plain sight that we just don't, we don't really notice and that we just take for granted. That kind of gets dressed up in ideas of heritage and history and nationalism. And oh, well, it's just, that's just how things are. I remember being, um, I feel like I've always had like republicanism in my blood. But when I, as in republicanism, as in like not wanting, as in being 
against the royal family. Should I thought the madness was right. What? At seventeen, man was a precocious royalist man. I really, no, but I've always known about them. I've always known about what they're up to, kind of thing. But as a kid, what I'm saying here is that as a kid, I remember asking like family members, "What is this? Why do we have this?" And just like not really understanding. And the answer would always be tourism. Tourism. They bring mm. so much money into the country. Tourism. Tourism. How do we square the circle of tourism when we have the kind of receipts that Laura's provided in this book, which literally tells us that all they do is rob us? George looks so nervous. Right. I was going to add a provocate, provocation to that. So if you look at it from any kind of historical angle, they always are problematic, right? So if you take it back from the start of the Enlightenment, from like Thomas Paine and, and Common Sense, you just look at it slightly off angle from the from the mainstream argument, you will see we've always had problems with the monarchies at the start of this thing called the Enlightenment, right? There's always mm-hmm. been a, a problem with them. Yeah, what are you talking about? With so with the Enlightenment coming through and starting to critique, critique the Enlightenment? Because obviously the, royal, yeah. the, the, the monarchy predates the Yeah, yeah, so there's always, there, yeah. there's always been an issue around them. So if you just look at it off angle, you'll see that always throws up lots of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they bind it with heritage and loyalty mm. and tradition... And sometimes, like the idea, what when kind of Laura, when you juxtapose it with the idea of familial love, like it makes it yeah. seem like it's natural. They all hate each other, though. <laughs> they all hate well, each other. I didn't, but I think this is partly why. Like, so there's a, there's lots of like, history books written about the monarchy, right? That's probably the most common places written about. But I think until you bring in something like sociology and kind of political sociology and also media studies, that's when you start to get the bigger picture. Because if you just look at it in terms of history, then it's just about lineage, right? And it's about dynasty. But if you start to bring the media in, you start to understand different types of symbolic power, for instance, like you said, the family line that really kind of shapes what we understand by the, by the royal family and therefore hides the institution of monarchy. So to me, I think it's only by kind of using all of those together that we can get to that point where we can understand kind of the bigger picture of what it actually is and what they actually do. If an alien came to London in particular and like landed outside Buckingham Palace, how would you explain to that alien what the function of them is and what they do? Well, there's quite a lot of like political stuff that describes them as lizards, lizards and aliens themselves, isn't there? So they might... <laughs> 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 Accent, that accent on David Icke there. Sorry, sorry, guys. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Gateway far, right? <laughs> uh, I, think, I mean, I think the serious answer to that is it's just, it's an institution that has survived hundreds of years based on, and I think what's really key is the way it shifts over that time. So it's kind of based on what's going on at that moment. So you can track it in terms of, you know, it was, the monarchy was heavily involved in empire and kind of colonial voyages and stuff and things like that. Um, and then we can kind of say now well, it's moved on and it's kind of made itself into a more contemporary institution. So this, I suppose, this institution of state, a national institution that has kind of embedded itself in the fabric that is very privileged. My key argument about monarchy always is that it kind of underpins ideas of inequality. It, if you have a monarchy, you're kind of, for want of a better word, legitimating a, a country in which inequalities are embedded. Looking at your analysis and looking at what, what Marx said about the aristocracy in the Communist Manifesto, and he kind of said to it, it will just disappear because they, they couldn't they couldn't really outlast the bourgeoisie. But I think he was wrong. Like he yeah. was wrong. I don't think they even become modern. From looking at your book, when I look at it, they're still very quite traditional, but they mm. use the networks they've built up over thousands of years to yeah. provide access. And so you have yeah. this kind of weird relationship between modern capitalism 
and a traditional form of capitalism coexisting. And actually, yeah, I agree with that. And actually, if you look at, I want to do something in the future about the aristocracy, because actually there's a lot of reports that the aristocracy have died off and they're not important anymore. But actually, when you look, like the Duke of Westminster is still like one of the richest people in the you know, in the country. So this idea that they've, they've disappeared, I just don't think is true. I think they've become, one, kind of clever at hiding themselves, and two, have kind of played the game of contemporary versions of capitalism, where they, for instance, like the Crown Estate, which is run essentially as a property empire, just like any other, you know, corporate property empire. So they're kind of playing the game of what capitalism looks like today in order to maintain those more traditional versions of privilege. Well, this is it. Like the owner of the Daily Mail is Viscount Rothermere, right? These, they're fully embedded. So I was trying to think, so who kind of speaks about this or what have I kind of been missing out? So I started reading, rereading Nietzsche because I th- he's an elitist kind of philosopher, but I think he understands the kind of dynamic. The dynamic mm-hmm. is that these people, all they care about is power. Mm-hmm. So everything that they do is to embed power. And I think we, we kind of misunderstand that. And we try to defend that or try to argue with them with words. But they don't mm. care about words. Mm. They, all they care about is power. And I think mm. this is symbolised in Boris Johnson. Mm. Best example. Aristocratic yeah. kid. All he, he's, there's no ideology to what to think about, but he just cares about power. Mm. Nietzsche, sick. I think mm. as well, just, just following on from that point T about power, and I'm going to do um, some Laura fangirling now, but basically one of the things <laughs> that I think is so fundamental about this book and something which we have tried to do on the show and I think we're going to try and do more of on the, on the show moving forward is have experts like yourself on Laura that are looking up, but looking up at what is happening in terms of inequality. What I mean by that is instead of punching down, as in we know what the fuckery is in terms of what capitalism has done to us, what capitalism continues to do to us in terms of poverty, in terms of racism, in terms of classism, all this stuff. That's still important. But actually, what are the receipts? What is happening at the top? What can we learn from the top? What do they get to... Like like T was saying in the beginning, the fact they get to sort of be like an enigma that we only know bits about. In terms of thinking about... The revolution. Laura's role is crucial. I like what you did, Laura, when you kind of, to demonstrate this kind of, that kind of enigma kind of states that they have separating the front stage and the backstage. Mm. I think that's a key way to understand it. I think we we obviously see the front stage. Well, the media spends most of our lives presenting the front stage as if that's the main thing that they do. There's quite a few really interesting early career scholars at the moment doing stuff on elite. Vic Vic Loveday. Vic Loveday. She's great. Yeah, and there's yeah, quite yeah, a few yeah. different, around the world as well. There's quite a lot of interesting stuff going on in Mexico around elites. I think what I think what's really important and kind of the conversations that we're having as a group is that the methods of sociology and the ethics that you have to kind of have to go through the ethics approval and so on. It just isn't fit for studying up, if you want to call it that. Uh-huh. So you know, doing interviews. I couldn't get an interview with anyone from the royal family. It was impossible. Um, so it's kind of trying to find alter, you know, alternative ways of doing that research. Um, and often, actually, when you go through ethics approval, for instance, they, they're assuming that your participants are the ones who might be vulnerable and you're the one with the power as the researcher. But actually, if you're doing elite research, it's the total opposite. And actually, mm-hmm. there's a lot of risk when you're doing this kind of work. Um, there's a lot of reports at the moment in the media about journalists um, being taken to court by really rich people, you know, using their money in order to kind of shut down stories. So there's, there's real risks to people that are doing this work. And I think that's something that, you know, universities haven't quite caught up with yet, actually, mm-hmm. and kind of haven't quite learned to deal with of how to, you know, how to kind of 
advise on that what kind of support people need and um also what kind of you know how we need to think differently in terms of methods but are they if we're talking about the more senior people within institutions Laura, I mean, why do you need, why do you need to know about the royal family? Like, why do you need to research? Why do you need to research the elite? Like, what do you need? What do what do you need to know? Well, and I think there's a lack of connection as well. To go back to what you said earlier, between... sorry, just to say, I was being sarcastic there. I don't know if that was clear. No, I know. I'm still a bit rusty. Uh, I've had a bit of a break. Um... <laughs> and I think I think the other thing is that people I've had as well before is people don't make the connection between. Um, so I was, at, I was at a conference once and I went to um, a panel that was on um, kind of working class people and poverty. Um, and we were talking about how we, we only have time to go to panels that is directly related to our research and we wish we could go to more, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's, that's why I'm here. And someone said, well, what, what, you know, what, what are you doing in this one then? Why are you in a, in a panel about poverty and the working classes? And I kind of said, well, because the, you can't, in my opinion, you can't kind of study you know, working classes and poverty without looking upwards and without understanding what's mm-hmm. happening at the top, because that's absolutely endemic to what's happening at the bottom in Grand yeah, Definitely. I think people kind of, there's that disconnect of that kind of, the kind of multi-directional relationship that we have. Like we just think power just comes from above, but we also act on them. And that's why they do their best to repress mm-hmm. and oppress poorer people, right? I, I think that's their fear. So I'm still so angry. Well, then I think, again, I think this is why media and particularly the work of Stuart Hall and stuff about mm. like producing consent is really important because, you know, we're not in a period anymore where, you know, you get beheaded if you dare say anything negative about the, the monarchy. But, I mean, you know, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> this, this aspect of kind of producing consent and again, using the media and kind of using the tools that are available to them. And Stuart Holt made these really important points about how, you know, if you have the power to represent others or yourself, then you are yourself really powerful because that's kind of establishing the narrative and establishing the ideology. And that's exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something else that people really misunderstand when people dismiss the monarchy as some kind of archaic traditional institution. Um, they're kind of missing the point of the fact that they they know exactly what they're doing. You know, the people that work for them, the communications officers, they're trained, like they work for the BBC, they work for Sky. They know exactly how media and representation works and they know how to package the monarchy for that news cycle. Yes, in many ways they are really traditional and really archaic, but in lots of ways actually they know exactly what they're doing and they've they've changed with the times as well. Noam Chomsky kind of sums it up. He said like power knows the truth but it's their mm. job to conceal it. They know what's happening. That's what they do. How do we get that message out there that they know the truth, but it's about educating the people that, that don't know? That's why I think your book does a really good job at, with all the receipts, man. Mm. And Laura, just for the listeners, what are some of your wait, top wait, pound receipts? Breed. Tell me about Poundbreed. Hmm. So Poundbury is a um, kind of an extension to the town of Dorchester um, in South England. Um, so it, it was Duchy of Cornwall land and Prince Charles is the Duke of Cornwall. And they agreed to release the lands on the agreement that Prince Charles could kind of design this extension of the town. So Pambury is um, designed under new urbanist architectural principles. And a lot of this is around quite tra- using quite traditional materials kind of banning avoiding car use not allowing a lot of kind of commercial signs in the space trying to make things look pretty so like gravel driveways and things um and it's built as that so i went and did fields work there and i kind of wandered around um in 2017 if you have a chance to go i cannot recommend it enough it's like being in another world it's like being in a disney film 
this traditional kind of historic version of, of Englishness, actually not Britishness, of Englishness that is reproduced there. Um, in terms of it was meant, the whole idea of, the, of this place was meant to be that it provided social housing and actually it provides very little social housing. Prince Charles believes part of the architectural principles is this idea of pepper potting so that social housing will be gathered around all the other houses. And actually when you look, the other houses are much posher, <laughs> kind of much more of these kind of architectural principles um, than the social housing. Um, so it's designed as this kind of, you know, he, Prince Charles was famously very against kind of modernist architecture and he's, he's fought against it for a number of years and made a lot of very derogatory comments about it. So it's designed as kind of pushing back against modernist architecture. But actually, when you look at the history of modernist architecture, a lot of that is about inequality. And a lot of that is kind of about getting families out of slums for example and into high-rise buildings and kind of proper sanitation proper living standards and so on so actually there's kind of a lot of class class inequality in the fact that he's dismissing this version of modernism and saying now look at this kind of historical kind of you know 18th century architecture in place of it when actually that was a period in which you know the rich were incredibly rich and the poor were incredibly poor but isn't it like it's a version of like his view right of what he thinks this state should look like and in yeah. effect, he's making a political statement, which he, oh, which they're not meant to be making. He's meant to be apolitical, right? But he's yeah. just a massive vanity project that kind of says the feudal times were the best times. I'm at the centre and you can live down the road. So Pabra is designed around like different areas um, <laughs> and kind of the, the centre of the area is called Queen Mother Square. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so there's a statue of the Queen Mother in the middle and then the buildings all around the side are named after different royals. So there's one that's called King's Point House, for example, that's, um, I think it's apartments. So you can kind of see, like, if you read into the symbolism of that, the idea of of monarchy being the centre of this, like, dream, his dream utopia location is essentially positioning monarchy at the centre of Britain itself. So you can kind of read issues of power into that, I think. But this is not at odds with some parts of the Enlightenment. Some of the Enlightenment was about enlightened leaders, right? Enlightened monarchy. These are the ones that lead things through. So someone like Charles, he would be the enlightened monarch. He's for like mm-hmm. social issues and helping people. Oh, he, yeah. he like cares about the environment. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So and... he, but as long as you tell to follow him and do what he says, because he's an enlightened one. Mm. It boils my blood. Like I love sort of case studies like that, that sort of really show you how symbolic power works but also like extract is extractive as well it's using our money to do this stuff like on the basis of on the basis of what on the basis of because they can or because power or because i think all of the above all of the above above. what is quite quite scary is it's the erasure of history right like yeah. I said to you, any history book you can pick up, you can see there's an inequality built there, but they're trying to erase that. No, and he wrote a book as well in the in the 1980s called The Vision of Britain. And Who? Charles did? Yeah, there's loads. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Like... When these people write books, you know how much it annoys me? <laughs> Do you know how much it annoys me? <laughs> this, is, this is how I felt when I was reading the book like that. Go on. He did 10 principles for the built environment. Um, and he said enclosure, systems of enclosure would um, produce privacy, beauty and a feeling of safety. And of course, that's totally raised like, the actual history of enclosures, which is essentially, you know, um, removing rights to the commons, driving people from their homes, murdering people, burning down townships, like completely ignoring the actual history of of the enclosure system and thinking about it from the position of of power from the aristocracy for whom it probably did provide privacy and probably did provide beauty and all of those things so again it's erasing those histories and rewriting those histories 
well, I was going to say rewriting them from a position of power, but I suppose they're already written from a position of power in the first place. Yeah. So just reproducing those norms. It didn't shock me as much as your book shocked me, Laura, but one of the first times when I really started to get my head around the relationship between the royal family, corporate enterprise, tax, and mm. our money... Um, was when I read Imogen Tyler's Stigma, The Machinery of Inequality. And I actually wrote a book review about it. And the bit that I sort of focused on the most was um, William and Kate's Heads Together um, yeah, campaign. That's Oh, like the Heads Together campaign is like a, is their sort of royal sponsored mental health mm-hmm. awareness thing, which basically individualizes um, mental health and sort of talks about things that you can do within your like a campaign, about things to do within your life to make yeah your mental health better launching at the same time as austerity we've got the largest child poverty i think in europe sponsored partly by virgin but, but the thing uh, that got on. me it's the, one of the cool responses the one that stands out for me is blackrock they are hardcore yeah. Yeah. investments man hard blackrock virgin like and i remember th- reading it and just thinking the you're taking the piss out of our lives the, so badly mm. so badly how have we not risen up how but think about right now as well like we're just coming into the jubilee yeah. a period when the cost of living is just shot up more Listen. and more people are needing food banks uh, we just had covid which has exposed even more kind of inequalities globally and we're meant to be having street parties and celebrating the queen being on the throne like it's quite when you think about it in those terms it's quite incredible yeah and, and it's incredible that we go along with it and this and and this episode will be coming out um in the jubilee week because we love mess um but also <laughs> It, when, we're record, when we're recording now, today it's the 12th of May, and it was yesterday. Um, Charles did the Queen's speech for the yeah, yeah. For, for the legislation, talking about the cost of living whilst he's on mm. that fucking gold throne. No, but when Britain joined the EU, it still could talk of empire and being quite big. And then when it was in the EU, it had a top it had a top, seat at the top table. But now, post 2016, it's emerged back on the world stage and it's seen, the whole of the UK seems like an anachronism. We have a monarchy which seems kind of backwards. We just paid 12 million to a. An alleged. To an, <laughs> I'm trying to. Go on, you say it, I don't know what to say. We've just paid 12 million to someone within the royal family that has been accused of. Yes, sexual assault. assault. That's the one, G That's man. One. We're, trying to get our, we're trying to get our word in. I, I need media training, rude boy. <laughs> <laughs> like it's madness. No, but just to emerge on the world stage, Britain just looks backwards compared to this most contemporaries and its relationship with the colonies now, with what well, its former colonies seems also mm-hmm. anachronistic. Now they're walking around parading themselves in a place where no one really wants them, but instead of kind of reading the room. They, instead of like, they want these people to say ask them to leave why don't you just leave like I don't understand that yeah 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 I think that's been exposed as well like when Prince Edward went um, a few there was a couple of weeks ago wasn't it and mm. it was, someone was talking about reparations and he basically just laughed in the face because he didn't know how to respond to it so this like, is just talk- a total lack of understanding <laughs> about how to respond to those kinds of requests but then that's really sorry that's really interesting in terms of like you know all these discussions going on in the Caribbean about republicanism and you know the place of the monarchy and that that's kind of framed as talking about it in terms of colonialism and kind of mm. that history whereas if you come to Britain Actually, you're talking about a very different history because if we became a republic, that's not based on us being a colony, right? We 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 were the colonizers, so it's a very different version of 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 monarchy and what republicanism would look like. And I kind of think that's you know that's why the conversation about republicanism. I've got I've got a provocation for you there, Laura. And what you just um, said. We had James um, Trafford on the show uh, a couple of months ago now, who wrote the book Empire at Home, that talks about mm-hmm. the. In- 
Britain as an internal colony. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think hmm. that in terms of thinking about the practice with finances and how they manage our money, their place within the structures of government and power and control mm-hmm. within Britain tell an important story about how Britain then has related to its previous and current colonies. I think that what you're saying is true, but also it's really important for us to not to understand that these practices were were bred here. Like he talks, hmm. James Chavez talks about like policing and control and stuff and how that was then exported um, overseas. But also I think that trying to create kind of international solidarities, recognising the practice of how the royal family manages tax and money here can help populations here perhaps see the links between our struggles with to that with other places which the, the royal family have extracted from yeah no i completely agree with that i think that's, I think that's a really important point I, th- I think as well it's about it's also about kind of britain's positioning within that and i think that's really interesting now like post-brexit um you know all this kind of talk from the conservatives about global britain and there was that report wasn't there mm-hmm. and actually the monarchy was mentioned in that as kind of part of um global relationships and kind of being used as global relationships they don't want so them they don't want people don't but that's it's so funny isn't it people don't want them no, people don't want it, but then it's kind of how that kind of that that conservative version of Britishness, and of course it's not really British, it's actually Englishness, yeah, yeah. is being um, is being constructed, and how the monarchy is being drawn on again after Brexit to do that. I mean, immediately after Brexit, there was so much talk about the Commonwealth and what the Commonwealth could be doing, and how we could use the Commonwealth, you know, in, in much the same way as we used to the EU to get to other places and have connections to other places. So I think the monarchy has kind of become symbolic again in terms of those global relationships after Brexit because of the fact that Brexit is so much waged on this very kind of conservative traditional version of Englishness. It's how pragmatic they are, right? So for example, I read an article the other day how Kate and William are dropping the HRHs when they're not going to use them going forward. You refer to them as Kate and William. William, That's what they want to be referred to going forward when they take over. And it shows you that kind of personalisation of of power, right? So yeah, like, William's pissing in the wind. He fucked it. Why he's why he he has he has he's pissing in the wind. Do you know why? Right? All he had to do, all he had to do, and this isn't me dying on the hill of Meghan. I don't really care. But let's just 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 get get into it. All he had to do was accept Harry's black wife, but he couldn't do it. Now, the popular in terms of the popularity on a kind of popular culture level on a kind of level of cult, like thinking about cultural studies mm. and how important that is and and perhaps also them having some kind of popularity amongst younger people fucked it yeah I, right you know no it is it depends what demographic you're speaking to right yeah it is noticeable how unpopular he is though in comparison to how where he was even five years I, I ago know, our circles our yeah. echo chambers yeah 100 percent. yeah if you speak to the conservative right like listen they like they love no, 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 that no. Yeah. no i hear you but yeah. what i think is interesting about the william case study is mm. he could have yeah, yeah. kept them going for a lot longer but uh, i think that because of william because of william i think that we that it could be in our lifetime i, just, it, I think it could I, be I, in our lifetime that they're not here anymore i, I hope for but i don't think so man. but do you see what i mean do, yeah, yeah, Lauren, I, I, Lauren, I do you like see it. what i mean about the kind of the symbolic but also power of William and his inability to control himself might actually be could actually be the downfall 
Well, I'm also a little bit skeptic about whether it will lead to the downfall. I'm yeah. sorry. To that. <laughs> Man, come on! <laughs> I, I do. I, I really agree with you, and I think I think we probably do need to talk about Megan because I think that's yeah. <laughs> I think that's all we, we always need to talk about. That I think I think I think William's really interesting. So my chapter, as I said, I wrote that quite a long time ago actually about kind of Kate and William and the children and being this kind of ordinary nuclear heteronormative family, kind of performing this version of kind of hands-on parenting, but very much comes from Diana actually I think it's modeled on that kind of version of what Monarchy is do you think do you um, think do you think well that kind of more um I mean if you compare William to well maybe not nowadays actually but if you can kind of compare like around 2015 version of William no it's, um, it, it's important Wood. the date's important because I think we're yeah, very recent it's all very recently changed but anyway carry well, on I think their performance hasn't changed. They're doing the same thing. So if you still look at their Instagram account, they're still doing the same things in terms of pictures of taking the kids to school and all the pictures released of the children are taken by Kate. So it's like, oh, look, Kate's releasing a little family photo album. Um, but actually, I think the response to those things have changed yeah. since the stuff around Meghan mm-hmm. and Harry. Because um, I think actually that exposed their ignorance to all of that, actually. Um, and it kind of exposed the inequality that's inherent to monarchy. So I think a lot of these things that we that were taken for granted and we didn't really notice, I think brought those to the fore and kind of made people think, oh, hang on, actually, <laughs> this is really problematic in ways that when, you know, when the entire institution was white, it didn't quite expose it in quite the same way because it wasn't, you know, as obvious. It was kind of just the status quo, as like I was saying earlier. Just a quick question. In June 2020, did, did the Royal Family put on their Instagram... BLM. I don't know. I don't know. Did I put BLM? Did I put Black Lives Matter? I think they might have. Oh, yeah. When I was reading your book, Laura, I think if you place any scrutiny on the front stage, it it kind of falls apart quite quickly. Mm. And then what's the difficult part and the kind of very hard to pierce to understand is the backstage. And I think you do a good job at kind of pointing out the kind of infrastructure because that's where their power is, and that's the bit that's so hard to understand. For example, they don't release any accounts. You don't really mm. know how much they earn or obviously one of the things people used to say to me is, the queen's rich but she's not one of the richest in the world but when i read your book she earns so much extra income i'm like she's really rich insanely yeah. rich can you say a little bit about the income um so there's been quite a lot of work actually in the, in the monarchy about trying to present themselves as accountable so like doing these kind of annual accounts like doing these annual reports um, and actually, when you look into that, it doesn't fully report everything or it certainly it certainly muddies the language a little bit. So there was one a couple of years ago where on the front page they said, you know, we get this amount of money from the sovereign grants for kind of official business. And then a couple of paragraphs down, it said um, we're getting extra money for the next few years to in order to revamp Buckingham Palace. And actually, that was ten, in the tens of millions that they were getting extra. So kind of the, the wording and the framing of that is quite interesting. Also, a lot of the discussions kind of frame, you know, they get money, how the, how the monarchy is officially funded through the sovereign grant, which is meant to be calculated from a percentage of the crown estate's income. That's how it's meant to be. It's supposed to be calculated. But actually, there's small print that says it can't, if crown profits, if crown estate profits decrease, then the sovereign grant can't decrease. But if they go up, it can increase. So actually, it's not really based on the percentage, is it? That's just kind of a, a way of presenting that information. Um, and then there's other kind of there's other things that aren't in that official calculation for the sovereign grant. So things like security, for instance, are, pro- are provided by a different government department. So there's all these kind of ways in which those sums are kind of mudded 
um, and presented in different ways that mean, again, you know, it, it's it's supposed to be accountable and it's presented as, oh, look how transparent we are. And then actually there's all this going on as well that you don't get to see. What have they got in the Cayman Islands? <laughs> It's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. You just dropped that. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) listen, I'm saying, Julia, you're on your own, bro. You're on your own, bro. It's in the book. I can talk about the report. I can't talk. I can't probably talk about what they have there, but I can talk about what they. Yeah, can you talk about the report? So, um, so in, in 2017, The Guardian were doing all these reports into offshore investments that were used to avoid paying taxes. And in one of them, um, the Duchy of Lancaster, which is the Queen's private estate, came up um, as having, using offshore private equity funds to avoid paying tax. Um, and that was kind of stored in the, in, the, in investments in the Cayman in the Cayman Islands, um, and also the the investments were put into retailers like Bright House. So that's obviously a rent to own company that charges huge interest rates on purchases using um, cost credit. So again, that's kind of reproducing these kinds of inequalities. So that's really like this was quite interesting timing for me because I was just kind of getting to that point about thinking about the monarchy as a corporation and thinking about how it's useful actually to think about the monarchy not as this kind of historical institution but as someone more comparable to uh, someone like Amazon or Apple, you know, a contemporary corporation. And actually this got at this really well because also implicated in this report was people like Nike that were kind of using exactly the same techniques in order to avoid paying tax as, as the monarchy was paying. And then what was also interesting was when this report came out, there was so many people who came out and said, oh, I'm really surprised, I'm really shocked. The Queen would be so shocked if she knew about this. So kind of, you know, mitigating these responses and kind of suggesting that, you know, the monarchy, or they can't possibly have been aware of it. They weren't doing it on purpose. You know, they, they're far, and positioning them as this kind of moral institution against, actually, those corporations like Nike and like Apple who were doing exactly the same thing. So I just thought it was a really interesting comparison in terms of the information that we're given, right? They were trying to, they were putting investments into these funds versus the way that was received as, oh, oh God, they, that's awful. They must be so shocked um, in terms of how we frame the royal family, I suppose. But- and that, and that kind of ties back into what, like your the kind of divide between the front stage and the backstage. That yeah. kind of that that managing of yeah. this kind of this that almost a separate entity. And I think you do a good example with the Grenfell example, where Theresa May flanked by the police and the Queen's uh, surrounded by her subjects and everyone's being very nice to her. If you just look at the history, you're thinking, well, that's not possible. She's the head of state. The prime minister is her, is an advisor. She can choose anyone to be the prime minister, but it just con- convention says it's the leader of the party. So it, all these things tell you, tell you that she's the centre of power. Louis XIV is it, I am the state. They are, she is the state. Yeah. Like, it's obvious. Why do we allow it? I don't understand. This is just- well, I wonder, and I wonder actually if a lot of that is caught up in her in the Queen. And actually when we have trials, as someone who has been kind of politically engaged, who has shown a lot of different opinions that have been controversial, um, actually that'll slightly shift the narrative because suddenly the idea of this, you know, she's positioned as this little elderly woman clutching a handbag, needs protecting. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of gendered implications actually in how the Queen is presented. But no. when you bring trials in as a king, Actually, that I think that conversation starts to shift slightly. Another provocation for you. So you know how you kind of juxtaposed the the royal household to the to a firm, and then said how that gets softened by the family firm, mm. and that kind of that kind of has notions of like a small family run business, and it seems quaint and almost archaic. Do you think that's kind of time constrained? Because when I think of the family firm, mm. 
I think of the mafia. Yeah, yeah. That, that, like a younger yeah. generation will think of the mafia, crime. And they, like I said, so when I'm talking about them as straight gangsters, that's the kind of notions we kind of think of as for a younger generation. This is a group of gangsters that run this place. Yeah, well, that's another handy connection for me, isn't it? <laughs> that we can use. I kind of use family as this idea of kind of morals, I suppose, and try to link to like small family businesses and independent businesses. Mm. Um, that we, I suppose we can still see that kind of being reproduced a little bit. Um, but yeah, mafia is another. I'm not. I'm not going to be mad at that. That's good. <laughs> that's what I should think of. <laughs> let's just go there a little bit what do you think it was about megan that threatened the firm so much everything yeah it is it, no 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 it's i mean and everyone knows on this show, we've spoken about men quite a few times on this show before mm. um in terms of the politics of it because it is she is a position was position is important for us that are interested in race class power Absolutely cultural yeah. studies she is part of the elite it is but it is interesting seeing how mm. gender race mm -hmm. nationalism how she's embodied like exp sorry experienced and also shined a light on her experience shined a light on just how pernicious not just obviously the state is but the media what's interesting for me in this is that it would have been really straightforward for them to just do diversity princess and actually <laughs> gain themselves probably another 100 yeah. years but they said no no too dark they literally said no too dark and like I think they've lost some years because of that. So I think, well, my argument is in the book, it's that I think there was an, an attempt to do that right around the time of the wedding. Diversity so princess, yeah. There was definitely an attempt to kind of co-opt, I've used the word, that what she represents in yeah. terms of diversity and use that in order to show the monarchy as being progressive. Mm -hmm. I'm doing quote marks here. Um, so for instance, her stuff around kind of, she did a lot of work around period poverty and she did some blogs around that. And the monarchy posted those on their website as a way to be like, and so it's like on the on their official website, for people who don't know, they, they present all of the charity work. And on Megan's page was linked to her blog. So it was a way of kind of presenting themselves as being linked with these progressive. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there was the so, attempt. So where did it go wrong, William? <laughs> it's William. <laughs> carry on, carry on. So, well, William's my, my ego. William's book. ego. Go on. My argument in the book, they, they tried to do that. They tried to co-opt that. But actually, she was kind of too um, symbolically loaded in who she, in who she was because mm. she didn't their attempt was to kind of get rid of those problematic histories of racism and sexism and stuff through this representation of Megan. And when I talk about Megan here, I'm not talking about her as an individual woman. I'm talking about what she represents. That's mm. really important. Um, but actually all she did was bring those things to the forefront. All those representations did was make us think, Oh, you know, what's she doing here? The monarchy has this incredible history of colonialism and racism. And then, then of course, the stuff with Prince Andrew came around and this comparison between Meghan talking about feminism and what Prince Andrew was doing was way too much of a contradiction in the press. So it kind of, I, my my take is that it kind of blew up because she was kind of, the representations of her were too much for them to possibly contain. And they couldn't possibly rewrite her in that kind of narrative that is useful to them because those histories were too much for them to erase. I agree with what you're saying, Laura. I think because they don't acknowledge those histories, mm. when someone comes in and represents them, it's too much. So the point is, I'd rather just erase them, remove yeah. them. And I don't have to deal with it because that's the, that's the power. It doesn't yeah. matter to them. It shows you how, how stratified elites are. 
There's there's old school elites. There's new money elites. There's Hollywood elites. Black elites. And these and the and you have to remember the Queen is part of an, a thousand year history elite, right? They they have all the networks. They made the networks. So when someone like Meghan comes in, she she has power. What she rep- she has a, she represents a kind of power, a new kind of power. But this is old power. If we're talking, this is like mm. biblical power. It's been around for a long time. And you know, I've, I've talked quite a lot about how I think in lots of ways they merge together so i think in lots of ways thinking about the monarchy as part of the new elites is quite useful because it gets us to start thinking about money but then i think in those cases it's also interesting to think about the differences and what they can kind of what they can contain and what they can't and actually i think it's also megan megan's position as a celebrity pre the royal family is interesting as well i think and i think that's important because she was already symbolic in all of these various ways and um, whereas kate middleton kind of came in and we only know kate middleton because she's a royal she was a blank slate they could write whatever they wanted onto her and she was available whereas megan was you know had very strong political opinions and did a lot of activist work so they couldn't write her in quite the same way i don't think Do you think kate's all right no, I don't like none of them, but just like anecdotally, like I feel, I feel like she needs help. No, she's she finished. Yeah, she finished. <laughs> she's finished. <laughs> she's indoors like that, just rocking her. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? But I find what you what you said just interesting, Laura, about the idea of being a blank state and and how Megan having her own history. It's the same, like with the um, what's, it, what's the one that married a divorcee, Mrs. Wallace, 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 Wallace Simpson. Simpson. She mm-hmm. had history, right? Yeah. So mm. for there, she was a, a tainted woman in in their yeah. eyes. They are problematic to the royal family. Camilla, yeah, yeah, oh. Camilla. Why does Camilla get a pass? No, but, no, but she's part of the aristocracy, man. She's part is of she? the crew. Oh, is she? Yeah, bro. This, yeah. bro, man, just thought about it, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Camilla's. Because can we talk about? Yeah, can we talk about? There's, there's three people in this relationship. I mean, I think, I think Camilla is really interesting. There's a really interesting BBC documentary, actually, that came out a few years ago. If you're interested in this, it was called Reinventing the Royals. And it talked about how when There's they some... wanted to announce that Charles was with Camilla, there was such a massive PR push in terms of kind of remaking Camilla. And actually, I think the crown's really interesting because it's kind of, it's educated a whole new generation of people that didn't know about that yeah. whole thing. Laura, I keep um, saying to Tiso, I really don't like overpopulized period dramas like Downton Abbey, all that stuff. Sorry, don't like that stuff. However, I have watched some of The Crown and it's pretty good. Would you say, Laura, as an expert, would you say it's pretty good or no? Yeah, I like I like parts of it. I think I think it is quite critical in places. Uh, my opinion is it still kind of glamorizes that whole thing. It's it does glamorize. It does glamorize. Yeah, it, especially... it makes Charles look like a dickhead. No, but listen, there's certain bits of, <laughs> when I watch it, when I watch it, and they they re- they, re- they repackage history in a way that it makes it palatable to someone. Yeah. So especially like the colonial stuff, and I'm like, I'm like, it's stuff in Kenya. Are you insane? The way that that, I was episode, like, yeah, that episode about South Africa in the latest series was yeah. pretty incredible in terms of how it repackaged and it repackaged the Queen's role in that as well. It like presented her as like the saviour. Yeah, yeah, it did. That was mad. Yeah. That was mad. So listen, that I, was that's, mad. Doesn't, doesn't matter how compelling the TV is. If you present real life as myth, it becomes a problem. Nah, bruv. It becomes a problem. If you pre- nah, bruv. It's like, well, that's why I can't watch Avatar. Like you're repackaging like real life as myth. No, I, I, I agree with that. I think I, I do think it's. I think the latest series was more critical actually, particularly of Charles and Camilla. Um, and yeah, and particularly there was some interesting stuff around um, funding and stuff in there as well. But I, I still think it, I, I still think it feeds into that kind of glamorization. And also, if you kind of link it, you know, lots of people say if you like this, you'll like Downton Abbey, and you're like so sort of linking it in with those kind of um, those stories which really very much glamorize those kind of histories of wealth um, and those kind of class inequalities. That's what I kind of find a little bit problematic with it. 
Um, but I have been impressed by some of it. I think some of it's really interesting. What if you, so we've not got long, Laura, but if you were going to say to listeners to the show, like, what is it about your scholarship and intellectual project that you feel like pe- more people need to engage with, with or why? What would you sort of focus on? So my thing would always be around inequality. So I think the fact that, you know, when we're, we're, we're talking about inequality, there's, there's often an assumption we're kind of talking about, um, we're kind of talking about poverty, whereas actually it's that looking up that I think I think is really important. And it's also about kind of the, the fact that the monarchy is not positioned in those discourses. So often we'll have an, well, if you have a uh, talk about, you know, elites, it's talking about corporate elites, you know, it's talking about the Mark Zuckerbergs, it's talking about, you know, CEOs of large companies and so on. It's, it's not talking about someone like the monarchy. And I think that's really you know really problematic that we don't frame it that way you know some of some of my favorite like left-wing commentators just dismiss the monarchy as some kind of traditional institution that's not worth thinking about and i think that's and that's really problematic and i think it's it's you know it's so fascinating to me that republicanism in this country just doesn't exist it's still quite taboo actually to say that Mm -hmm. even among the left it's still quite taboo to say that and when was the last time you saw someone for a public on like the bbc doing some commentary just doesn't it just doesn't happen why i wrote this really is to kind of say you know this is really important we can't just dismiss it you know we can't just say oh well it's just part of who we are and that's what it is it's not just about history and heritage it's about who we are now um and it's about what this country looks like what we want to be (laughs) and um kind of exposing those structures of power why all these things you're saying are absolutely brilliant by the way but why didn't this come to the fore during the pandemic during the lockdown when they're locked down in a palace and people are locked down on the street, people are locked down in a one-bed flat. Like, why were we not? Why are we never? Why are they always getting away with it? As in I, getting away with it, as in existing. I think what's interesting is if you contrast the the UK to continent Europe, and continent Europe, they have a series of revolutions, and they 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 kind of reign against the kind of monarchy. But the UK is quite unique. Mm. We don't. We haven't done that yet, and and I don't know why. I, like, remember I told you if you go to Guildhall, there's a statue in there by Pitt the Younger, and Pitt the Young, on the on the statue it says, "I will protect the country essentially against the kind of the kind of excesses of the French Revolution." This was something that they were really scared of. The UK was really scared of it, but I think what they've done, and I kind of, and it's shown through Laura's book quite well, managed their front stage very well. Yeah. And they, they manage it so well that it, it becomes normal. So adopting that kind of Victorian values of the family. So they're no longer seen as the elite, they're seen as a family. The idea of bringing out the Christmas tree, which everyone has, and which Prince Albert kind of introduces over here, this, they feel like they're part of your life. Like as a 17-year-old, I, I like history. And so I was enraptured and I will try to defend the monarchy. It's, just, it's a hard thing to do. If you take an argument, it's, it's easier to argue against it than it is for it because it, it's just basically... Unequal, but, it, it? but it's but it's not about it's not about actual tangible things. Is it? It's about how it makes you it feel, makes you feel yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's nationalism. Wow, could talk to you for hours about this, Laura. I think we're gonna. I think we need a mini series on republicanism. How to how how to get rid of the monarchy? Sorry, stop, stop. No, no, no. no but think, even, even your reaction is telling, right? How that's get, free speech. Because, because that, it needs to happen, right? Because the idea, if you get rid of them, what would actually change? 
they still like if you go to any other country with the, with the where they're rich if you got rid of them they still operate in the top echelons of society so it makes no difference it just don't have political power Laura thank you so much for joining us I do I do think we're going to have to thank bring you back on Laura I think I think she's on the arc I think we need Listen, Laura from the she's, arc she's, she's, I don't even remember on the X-Men list full you're X-Men on the, you're, you're, we're your X-Men definitely full X-Men. Laura full hey. X-Men <laughs> full X-Men listeners thank you so much for joining us the first time in a number of months you're going to have a Patreon episode Patrons thank you so much for staying with us and we'll see you all again next week see you next week bye thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram if you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination please support us via Patreon if not you can always support us by sharing subscribing rating and reviewing 